Hey, this is Dave Pryor for projectmanagement.com. Today in the podcast, we're going to focus all on the idea of how to apply uh, Agile inside a digital agency. So that's something that a lot of organizations struggle with. It comes up in my classes all the time. And I'm doing research also because I'm giving a talk this fall at the DPM Summit. Um, and Darren Peterson is somebody that I've been interacting with on this sort of private I don't know how secret it is, but there's a message board space for people who work in the digital space, or a Slack channel, sorry. And in a conversation last week, he mentioned some stuff that he was doing that was working. So I asked if he'd be willing to share some of that. So Darren, thank you for taking time out of the day. Oh, glad to be here. So before we get into it, do you want to talk a little bit about, uh, I want to make sure I say it right, Lullabot? Yeah, that's correct. Did I get well, it right? Okay. Yeah. So Lullabot is a company of about 50 people. Uh, mostly devs, but some support staff as well. And we range uh, from Europe to North America. We all work from home, so we're entirely distributed. There's no central office or any of that. And um, we specialize in Drupal particularly, although we also have uh, a fair amount of JavaScript work that has come up lately. And so we've been doing big CMS projects for like name brand kinds of folks for uh, about 10 years. Okay. As well as training in, in the Drupal space, which is where we actually started once upon a time. So, um, okay. yeah. So how do you guys, how do you manage the coordinate? I mean, before we get into the main topic, I'm curious about how you manage the coordination of all these people. Yeah. So that's, that, I mean, that, that would be a, very daunting for a lot of folks, the idea of 50 people all remote. Yeah. So the, the first thing about it is you have to hire the right people. <laughs> we, we're okay. big on... Uh, hiring managers of one, people who are great communicators as well as being great developers. Okay. Um, so if we hired somebody who was a cave dweller and couldn't interact with the client directly, uh, we'd be failing. Okay. So uh, we, we actually have a, a part of our hiring process. We, we encourage people to submit a video as well as you know the normal resume cover letter, et cetera, so that we can get a sense of who they are on a screen okay. and, see, and see whether or not they're going to be personable have a sense of humor and all the other sort of cultural things that, that really help in a distributed company. Um, and we have really clear sort of like guidelines about how our communication channels work. So okay. email versus Slack versus you know video chat. Um, so we're really careful about and just intentional about all those things, which maybe you can kind of get away with if you were in, a, in, a, in an yeah. office together with other people. You just have to be a little clearer about that. Uh, but given that it's, it's basically, uh, it works a lot better than you think. You just have to be able to be a self-starter and yeah. kind of a manager of one kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So I'm curious, I'm just going to ask you this and maybe cut it out of the interview later or not. Sure. But the company I work for is virtual as well. And one of the things that was confusing to me in the beginning was there were so many social media options. Mm -hmm. And I felt really frustrated because I felt like I was supposed to participate in each one of them. And then eventually somebody explained that that's not the case. They're just all there so you can engage however you want to. So it's, it's, it's an intentional choice to overload the option pool so that, you know, whether you want to do Slack or you want to do a message board or you want to do email or you want to do Sococo or something else, there's right. a way for you to engage with other people. Um, but you mentioned that you've got this kind of specific ways of doing it. I'm curious as to how you go about doing that. So we focus on Slack for day-to-day -day communication, as I think a lot of us are now doing. We used to use okay. IRC back in the day. Yeah. You know, so if you oh, old school. It, yeah, you know, kind of we started as, <laughs> as a bunch of nerds working on an open source project. Just and tell then, people, go find <laughs> it in Gopher, right? 
Yeah, right. No, I mean, IRC was the thing that the Drupal community was running 10 years ago. And so okay. we inherited that because we were all Drupal developers of one stripe or another. Okay. Um, but as time has gone on, Slack obviously is a much friendlier experience and our clients can be involved in that to whatever extent we, we want and or we join theirs, you know, that kind of thing. So um, so definitely text chat in, in that way is is really important just for the getting your question answered, saying hey yeah. to people kind of thing. We also have Yammer which is uh, kind of a Facebook that uh, Microsoft owns it now, I believe, but yeah. it's kind of a Facebook style social media um, community, which is private to us. Uh, and that is a little more like, you know, photo of the day, everybody show off your pet, you know, um, okay. what's the weather like those kinds of things. And so those are the two main interaction channels. Uh, email tends to be uh, more sort of business oriented documentation, contracts, paperwork, uh, okay. you know, formal stuff for the most part. It's interesting and, that you're using yeah. Yammer and Slack. Yeah, um, and I don't know that that's like a permanent thing. We've been using Yammer for years, and Slack okay. has has been good, but uh, hasn't reached critical mass for us in a way that that makes us want to replace Yammer. Because even though yeah. there's days where we hate what Yammer does, it's still uh, <laughs> it's still the, your thing. Yeah, I mean the cost of changing out of a familiar tool is really high, as it turns out. So. Just mentally, yeah. the, the the mental friction involved in, in replacing that. So, um, yeah. So cool. we do as much as we can with those things, and uh, you know, we try to just like suggest that people set up their remind not reminders, their notifications in such a way that it works for their life. So if you don't want to be reminded in Slack on your phone, uh, everybody's a grown up. Be sure and turn that off so that your family time's not interrupted or, or whatever. Okay. So now that I know you're distributed on it, I'm even more curious about how you've been able to get Agile to work. So can you share a little bit about kind of your road into introducing Agile into a an approach that you guys take when you take on client work? Yeah. So there are things about Agile which clearly don't work in an agency, and then there's some that really, really do. Okay. Um, and my understanding of you know how Agile was sort of formed once upon a time uh, – is that you know it worked really well for internal teams and maybe or maybe not maybe was envisioned as this is how we write software inside a product company as opposed to a uh, you know a shop that is doing services for people right um, and I find that if you apply agile to that mentality of like product development man yeah. it works great because everybody gets around the table and figures out what are we building and then we go and we, we iterate you know that's that's the very uh, surface version of that, right? But you have no table. We have no table. That's that's step one. Um, step two would be usually when we are engaged by a client, the ideation process has already begun. They already know that they're trying to build XYZ. They're building a website or they're building an app or they're trying to do an integration for uh, a set-top box um, yeah. for the TV channel or whatever it may be. Um, and so we're not there in the that necessarily that very first phase. We get to do discovery on their idea, but we don't actually get to ideate on those initial things with them. Okay. And that's really where user stories, formally speaking, uh, would want to happen. <laughs> and you know, like before any user interface has been drawn up, you talk about features in terms of user stories like that. So, but I'm sure your clients write wonderful user stories. I'm sh I, as do all, <laughs> right? Um, I, I have a I have a Sorry. talk slash article that's that's 
that's bubbling up in me that I haven't quite finished yet about the the nature of user stories and where they fit and where they don't. So that's one yeah. of the things right now. But the we definitely do discovery. We definitely write tickets. We uh, we often are using Jira, but if a client has a different system, we use that instead if it's more comfortable. Okay. For them. Uh, so we try to to apply ourselves to whatever tool works for the client uh, based on the size of the gig and all that stuff. But what we find actually works um, is not the the, the Scrum or extreme programming or, or other agile methodologies planning phases because uh, typically when a client comes to us, they have a budget in mind and they need their product done at the end of that budget. And so right. we can't just build till we're done, which is sort of the myth of agile that that, that ever actually happens anyway, right? At some right. point, somebody has a budget somewhere, even in a product company. Um, but certainly the budget is a big deal for, for agile project management at an agency. So we have... Uh, you know, the need to deliver something, again, in, in usually in little bits to get a lot of client feedback, which is, you know, very sort of agile. Um, but we need to do it in a way that we know we're going to build pretty much from the time we set out. Okay. And so we do uh, some some sort of big design up front usually involves Photoshop comps or sketch files or other kinds of style guide materials that, that are going to govern what we build. Uh, we annotate those, we break them into pieces, we, we do all the things we need to do to figure out you know, what that box on that page is going to be and how is it going to behave and, and what are the back-end implications of it all. Um, and then as soon as we have enough understanding to get started, and not too much, mind you, because we rarely have full knowledge, right? <laughs> um, yeah. Then we start writing tickets and we start packing sprints. So do you plan one sprint at a time or do you try to plan multiple sprints at a time? Uh, the cone of uncertainty at the start of a project is usually so wide that we can we can see like that first sprint is going to be all infrastructure and the, the first bit of like back end snapping together of fields and stuff, you know, okay. uh, to, to build out the, the ability to actually input content in the system. Um, so by the time we get closer to the middle slash end of the project, we can see where we're headed um, and we're still probably only really building two sprints out in terms of like stacking up the backlog for that. So when you, let me, I want to just pause here for a minute. So you're saying from the perspective of the team or the product owner, because like I would, in a class, I would teach the PO should be two to three sprints ahead, but the team should never commit to more than one sprint at a time. Yeah. And I would agree with that. I think the, okay. um, when I'm, project managers at Lullabot are a little funny in that sometimes we act both as project manager and business analyst. Got um, it. You know, I'm sure a lot of other digital project managers have had that same experience, but yeah, we um we work really tightly with the product owner to prioritize what the roadmap should be. So I'm thinking in, in those terms, I'm thinking two or three sprints out about okay, probably what are we going to be able to build and what should be on the roadmap, and if we don't hit that by the right time, what are we going to do? You know, all the risk management stuff, and then the the team itself is is really looking at the current sprint and are they going to make it? You know, how are they going to adjust the requirements that that we've been given and, and triage yeah. and things. So, um, so one or two sprints in terms of what we plan to do, maybe three at the outside, uh, especially if we have an idea that that, that third sprint out is going to be, ah, it's all bug fixes. Uh, but you're but, still flexible. You're not like committed and locked no, into no, that. No, right? not committed okay. at all. Um, the current sprint is the one we're definitely committed to. And cool. the next one out, we know pretty much what we're trying to hit. And then the third one is uh, we have an idea. So Got it. Okay. Yep. Um, so it's really agile delivery 
as opposed to agile yeah. planning, I think, in terms of how it works for us as an agency. So I want to I want to pause for a second and, and bring up something that I, I believe it was you that posted it on the board about the reason that you do the upfront planning. Now I would I hear you know the, what you just described is common to what I hear, and people say, well, we have to do the design upfront, then we're agile in development, which I would say, well, that's still waterfall because you're doing design then development. But the explanation of the reason that we're doing that design part upfront because the client expects it. That was you that posted that, right? Uh, yeah, I'm, that may have been me. I certainly think that. that The client needs to be able to say, at an agency, they need to be able to say, what are we getting? How much yeah. are we paying? For this? You know? And so it helps their comfort level to have an artifact that they can hold in their hand and say, this is what we're building. They've got to be able to show that to the boss. You know? So that's really interesting to me because I've always taken, like, usually I would talk to people at agencies. I'm like, well, if you're going to do Agile, you're going to have to teach Agile to the customer. And that's a huge cost to take on and a hassle to try to educate them to work in a different way when they don't care one way or the other. They don't care one way or the other. Yeah, I, I so think they didn't hire me different to do side. that. They right. didn't hire me to make them agile. They hired me to deliver them a thing for a certain amount of money. Or okay. I mean, the lullaby actually tends to work more on uh, sort of retainer-based. You're buying our developers for a certain number of weeks, you know, that kind of a thing. Um, okay. We do work fixed bid when we have to, but... It's, it's not the safest way to, to run an agency. So if we don't have to do that, we don't. Um, the goal is that we would build enough trust for the clients that they would say, yes, we know that, that you guys provide value and therefore we're gonna, we're gonna buy your time for a set number of weeks or whatever to, to build something that works for us. So they put you on like a retainer or, you know, yeah. ex okay. Yeah. And then what about with the tracking of work? Are they looking for like hourly reports of labor and things like that? Or is it just the deliverables? Typically not. It's typically the deliverables. Um, okay. Different clients want different things, so we report on hours when, when they ask us. But uh, most of the time, it's you know if we've worked with them long enough for them to feel comfortable with, with how we like to do business, we'll we'll end up um, you know they buy our time for six weeks with a, a set okay. team size, and then we we get in there and uh, start hammering. Okay. So I want to get into the big meaty part of this and talk yep. about your teams because I, you know, I, I, the company that I work, one of the main tenets of Agile Transformation is you have to get stable teams. If you don't have stable teams and a well-formed backlog and you can't deliver working tested software on a regular basis, Agile's not going to work at all. And right. at all the agencies where they've got, you know, people on 13 projects and they're, you know, all on different teams at the same time. That seems like an impossibility to get to a stable team. Um, but you guys have a way of doing that. Well, yeah, we, we basically said we're not going to book our devs, except in very rare cases, you know, if the, if the forces that are happening to the company right then require it. Um, okay. We're, we're committed to, to booking our devs to one project at a time. Okay. So that's, and that's even further, like I would say, if you can get a team that you can keep together, even if they have to be on 13 projects, at least they're together and you get that, you know, all the communication efficiencies, but right. you are, yeah. I, I'm curious as to how you're maintaining the business. If you've got these people just dedicated to one client, one project at a time. It's, um, it's a challenge. I mean, our okay. Lullabot has been, we were one of the earliest Drupal companies and we have the reputation of, of being one of the good ones. And okay. so uh, our rate's probably higher than, than some shops. Okay. Uh, because we have sort of reputation and word of mouth within the, the Drupal community. But the, the, the real trick of it is we don't think it's tenable to put people on 
six projects at a time or 13 or whatever, because the cost of switching hats yes. is what, 15%, something like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and according to whatever study I read that or, you know, somebody quoted that sometime on Twitter, <laughs> whatever it was, 15% is the number that everybody You can make around. up any number you want. You just have to say statistically it's been proven. Right. It's been proven. I, 200%. I have, 200% is the, is the cost <laughs> of switching tasks. No, I, I hear it is 15 is, is what everybody says. And that, um, it's just not worth it. We can provide yeah. better value to our clients, which means that when we negotiate with our clients, we say, we're going to dedicate our person to you. And the first thing they say is, wow, really awesome. Because almost every client that's been around the block more than once has had a developer assigned to them, but not working. Yeah. Because they were on the six other projects that 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 company had assigned. Right. Um, right. And it it does not feel honest, and I don't believe it is honest to put somebody on a project and say, "Yeah, we're working for you," and then have them working on something else. Um, and so the the leadership at Lullabot looked at each other at some point in the, in the process of building a services company and said, "We're not going to do that. It's it's harder on the dev, and it's yeah. it's it's disingenuous to the." The project. So when we talk to our client, we say, this is how it's going to be. I say, first, they say, great. Then they say, oh, we're really going to have to have our stuff together in order to make sure that you guys have everything you need to work, which is well, true. That's, uh, that's the thing is it drives different behavior on their part. Otherwise, they're paying to have somebody sit around and pick ass all day. Yes. And that is a very rare occurrence. I think because so how know- do you prevent that? Because that's what I think all the skeptics would probably be thinking right now. Like the developers just sitting there waiting for something to happen. I mean, part of our pre-sales process is letting them know, the client know what our expectations of them are going to be. Okay. We, and this is also so it touches on a really key agile thing. The product owner needs to be very, like, connected to the devs. Okay. Um, we expect time from the client in order to deliver the good work that we're trying to deliver. So, um, if they're not going to be able to give us input, we will have told them ahead of time this is what we expect of you. If they can't make that, then that'll be expensive. Be, it'll be expensive, but they'll, they'll be warned throughout our project managers like myself and others well about are going to, you know, ring the bell loudly and say, our devs don't have enough to do because you haven't made the decisions you need to make. Okay. And, and here's our options since you can't make those decisions fast enough. Do you end up turning down work then? I mean, I'm assuming if you get a client, they know that this is what you're doing. It's not like they're going to be surprised by it. Yeah. I mean, I, we have turned down work in the past, but usually not for this reason. Okay. You know, when you, when you're flush with clients and you have the, the luxury of turning down work, you know, that's a good thing, but it's usually because we don't feel like the client's a good fit for us. And this, this factor may play into it, but it's usually more like, um, the way that they want to work won't be sufficiently agile. So can you give me an example of that? Uh, you know, if they say the product owner isn't going to be available to you, or if we, okay. if we sniff that the politics in there are so crazy that we don't want to get involved. Like we've had okay. times where we get into the pre-sales and you even send a team out and do meetings on site and all that stuff. And you walk away and you're like, those people are nuts. Okay. And if you have enough client work in your backlog that you're, that people are wanting you, then maybe you have the luxury of saying, you know what? That's a, you're dangling a lot of money in our face, but it's not worth it. <laughs> um, all right. But you know, times aren't always that easy. Right. And so we'll take gigs that are less desirable or, you know, have the kinds of conditions that you're describing where the client's not really engaged. Yeah. Um, I worked with a client who was spread across American and European time zones and they didn't talk to themselves, didn't talk to each other at all, uh, much less to us. 
Wow. And so it was really hard to get decisions made. And when we did make decisions, someone reversed them, kind of the, the whole swoop and poop. Yeah. You know, some higher up is flying in and, and, and treads all over the work that you've done, decisions you've made. Um, so that's always difficult. And that's not different just because we have dedicated teams. But, you know, we, we sort of pride ourselves in saying, okay, we're, we're here for this. We're ready to work. And since you're not ready to work, here's what we can do. And we give them as many options as we can, give them the, what we know about the project at that point. And then, uh, and usually they'll be like, yeah, do that. one," <laughs> And then we go to town because we understand enough about what they're trying to get to at that point that we can make pretty good decisions on their behalf. Okay. And do you have, do you have awareness about how this is, this impacts, you know, employees when you bring in new staff and they've come from other places that are run differently when they're allowed to just stay on one thing with one team, does that provide like a greater sense of satisfaction or do they get bored? I mean, what? Absolutely. No, absolutely. Cause nobody's ever bored. <laughs> There's always okay. something to do. Um, now I, I will say this, the kinds of folks that are on my teams, uh, if we do go slack for a while, and it's almost yeah. never on a client. It's like maybe we don't have some place to sell you into the next client for a week or whatever. Okay. Um, then people go stir crazy because they want to be doing something productive. They feel like they're not putting value into the company or all that stuff. But, okay. Um, but for the most part, when we have client work on, we work really hard. And if we feel like uh, things are slacking towards the end of the project or slow at the start of the project, we find the right thing to do and do it. Because I think people generally can be trusted if you hire the right folks to to make good decisions oh we should automate that build process before it gets too busy to do that those kinds of things so they'll come up with their own backlog items to work on if they get yeah that that is a question that comes up a lot and i'm always like i have never seen an agile team ever get to a point where people are like ah you know let's just sit around like it's this relentless pursuit of fixing and finding new things to try i mean it yeah which is very self-propelling i think it's always a target-rich environment. I think the, yeah. there's always the question of, is a developer too excited about a particular feature? Is it going to gold-plate it? You know, is she going to go beyond what the client needs? So yeah. it's helpful to have that conversation among the team and just say, do we really need that thing while we're waiting for the client to show up with the actual requirement or whatever? But um, I, I worked on a, a project with a large team, really big for us, which was probably... 12 to 15 developers and an architect and a couple of PMs. Usually, okay. usually at that point, our, one of our PMs really manages the team and the other uh, really moves into full business analysis mode and just requirements okay. gathering. When it's a team that large, we did uh, a gig with MSNBC where we you know, built their whole website out uh, probably four or five years ago now. And it was that size team. Uh, okay. and, and dedicate one, we sort of figured out, oh, this is how we have to do it. But this was a, a different client, same situation though. And, um, they didn't have their designs together. When we right. started, we thought they did. They weren't available to us right off the bat. We thought they were going to be. Um, and so we had we took the people we could get access to, which was their like DevOps IT segment, and talked about how we were going to deploy umpteen sites on the same architecture and all the complexities. And we worked out a bunch of stuff while we were waiting for the business side to come up with, uh, you know, okay. the time. To That's talk awesome. To us. So, yeah. You cool. kind of just do what you can yeah. So I want to ask you about user stories. So you mentioned them a little while ago. Um, my experience has been, and I would include myself in this collection, that most of us pretty much suck at writing user stories. And mm-hmm. I feel like that's generally okay because the story is just a placeholder for a conversation. It just has to get clear enough to be able to have the conversation. Yeah. But um, 
How do you go about teaching your customers to write like stories that can be worked on? Yeah. So there's probably like a first answer and a second answer here. The, the first okay. answer is <laughs> first client, we hit him with a fist, then we hit him with a shovel. Right. Seven point seven two. See. Um, no. The the first answer is clients have to know how to write things that developers can work on. So what's actionable? What's a like a bug report? Let's not even yeah. go to user stories yet. If a bug report doesn't contain a URL, if it doesn't contain something that we can go and prove what's wrong with it, a screenshot, a set of steps to replicate, you know, those things are necessary. Yeah. And um, depending upon the, the level of technical expertise or how long somebody's been doing this, you know, if they've never really built a, a product before with the kinds of technologies that we're working with, they may not know how to communicate that. So you coax them into it, you show them examples of the ones that you've written. You say, hey, this is how we need to do it. Um, and they generally get on board. I think with user stories, there's an added layer of complexity because uh, it's such a strange, non-intuitive thing to say yeah. you have to you have to write in this as a user. I blah 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 blah. <laughs> yeah. So that I can blah blah blah. Um, the the reason it's not intuitive is people aren't used to putting other people's shoes on and walking in them. Uh -huh. So so you know when you when you get a product owner who's not writing good user stories, usually it's like, as the as the user, I want to see ads so that I can be convinced to, right? Yeah. No right. user wants to see ads. That's not a good story. Exactly. Like, like on the not even on a technical level. It's just uh, the motivation of the story's wrong. You know. Yeah. And I get tripped over. I trip over that a lot. Like, the system wants to show the ad. The user doesn't right. want to see it. The database has become sentient and wants things. Right. And, and, <laughs> and all of that is weird, but I can get with it if we have to have that convention. Yeah. I think the, the, the trick of it is, as I've read uh, user stories applied and looked at, at some of the history of this stuff, looked at the agile modeling kinds of things, and, uh, and looked at even like user story mapping. Which is a more yeah. That's great book. that you're doing that. Wow, I'm, I'm I'm studying the heck out of this right now, trying to figure Jeff's out. Jeff's going to be psyched. <laughs> it's great. It's a great book. the The trick is that um, if you read, is it Kent Beck that wrote the User Story Supply book? Who was that? Uh, Mike Cohn. Cohn. Mike Cohn. Cohn. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. Go, yeah. So so his book is great, but I, I uncovered as I was reading it in the last several months some assumptions and like presumptions about the process that a user story, the way he describes them will be used in. One of them is, says very clearly, there can be no um, user interface diagram built before the user story is written. Well, and there's a reason for that. Yes. A Go specific for reason for that, that you guys, I think are working in a different, at, at, from a different direction. Yeah. So we never want to specify how, because we always want to leave that up to the people that are going to be solving the problems. So yes. if I get a, a, you know, a client who says, well, there has to be a button here, then my designer is going to send them and go, I'm sorry, which design school did you graduate from? Get out of my sandbox. Right. Like, don't take that away from them because that's how they get ownership in the thing. Sure. And I'm, I'm a hundred percent with that. The, the trick at an agency is that we usually enter into, unless we get lucky and come on board very early in the process while we're still strategizing things. Right. And that happens once in a while, but not as often as we'd like. Um, if we can get our design and strategy folks in at the ground floor, then we can influence those changes. And we could use a, a user story 
classical user story format like that. Yeah. Right. Um, but if we walk in and they already had it designed and they just asked us to come in and build it, you know, we're already several steps past the, the, right. They've the blue already made sky all version of yeah. user stories. Yeah. So user stories, when you get into like, how do we write a user story for a dev to build? I actually have a really hard time rationalizing the user story process for driving. Yeah. And out. I don't think anybody would argue that you should force yourself into it if it doesn't yeah. make sense. I mean, it's just there to help you have the conversation. Yeah, I mean, I've been with clients where they're like, we have to have stories and they all have to be in this format. Oh, dear. With, without regards <laughs> to the. Uh, I don't know the, anybody that would say you should do that. Oh, yeah, because you got to have stories because we're trying to apply agile across the enterprise, across so the organization. Every rule, yeah. So everybody don't has to follow any of the rules. Forget inspect and adapt. Um, right. <laughs> okay. So, so, so that's uncomfortable, right? Yeah. Like, I have to write it in this weird way because. And this happened on more than one project for a little while. You know, you get a big enough client who's adopting Agile or, you know, scale Agile framework or some of those kinds of things that have been coming out. And uh, suddenly it's really just following of, of precepts without regard for what the project actually needs because you want consistency across the organization so you can report upward, which is not really the Agile point. So I'm going to try to get you something to fix this. I'm going to be at the Agile conference soon, and I'll see if I can get some of the people who write the books about user stories to Great. make a little soundbite for you to play for your customers. <laughs> Excellent. I'll be there too. So I'll, I'll, oh, great. Okay. So great. maybe we can, yeah. yeah, we can pick up more there too. Um, yeah. So I want to ask you one more question. Um, what has been the most difficult, or what is the thing that just flat out doesn't work from Agile? I, I'm biased against story points as a Why? measurement of okay, velocity, good. which Why? is not <laughs> so. Let's um, do it. This is stuff. Yeah, stuff that I got from. Um, oh gosh, his name is dropping out of my head. Uh, Focused Objective is the name of the company. His name. Oh, the website yeah, 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 Troy. Yeah, Troy. Again, so I went to genius and a wonderful yeah. human. Yeah, great guy. And his contention is where any two things can be measured and one of them is easier, two, two measures of basically the same, they're equivalent, they, they give you the same measurement, Yeah. like of velocity in, in our case. If right. two things can be measured and one is simpler and easier to measure, then you should do that rather than the harder one. And story points have all this baggage around them of forecasting meetings like where you sit down and you have to play story point yeah. poker and you do all that stuff. And then it turns out that they're not very accurate. And there's always the confusion about, well, is this, are story points really hours? You know, and the client says, yes, they're hours. And the dev say, no, no they're never hours. hours. Right. I would agree. But So I, I was into story points for a long time. And then I got into Troy's material and I said, oh, if you can pull a list of like, completed tasks, the number of completed tasks over the last four or five weeks, then you run the simulation on it. And that's easier than doing story points. That takes one person. It doesn't take a meeting. Okay. And, and you get a pretty good sense of velocity. And I've tried that in my own work. And it works. And it works. Okay. I find it's a pretty good predictor of the number of things you can get through. So then it's just a conversation of what's important. Right. You know, it's funny to me, like I spent a lot, like four years fighting against story points. And I find that there's people that don't like them because they just want everything to be time. And it just doesn't make sense. And there's people like you just said, I've done this. You've kind of evolved past it. Like if you're using Troy stuff or if you've gotten to that, everything is a one state. 
um, to me, that's that's a different. Yeah. Like you've passed through it, you know, gone beyond it than just mm-hmm. deciding that points are time. And that's you know we were talking earlier about you know the clients uh, you know when you get hired to do agile. Or did you get hired to deliver a product? <laughs> yeah. You know, I didn't get hired to convince people about agile metrics and, and post-agile metrics, if you want to call it that, um, the way that Troy talks about it. But that is, in fact, what's going on in my head. So every once in a while, I'll like pull back the covers and show a little bit of what I'm doing, uh, just to do my own health checks. But I don't do them all the time because nobody's looking at it but me. Uh, yeah. If you try and convince the the client then suddenly they want to go show their boss and their boss's eyes glaze, glaze over when they see a Monte Carlo. And it's like, ah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. so it really, it really is better to keep to myself and say, yeah, we're on track. Oh no, I think we have a problem. We should talk about you know, how to triage some of this stuff. And then you wow. can show them a little bit of that if you need to. Um, it's a useful tool for me just to be able to say, you know, what's, what's normal. And then how do we pack our sprint accordingly? What, yeah. What's our velocity actually look like? So, yeah. So this has been really inspiring to me because I you know this stuff so well. I want to ask you one more one more question. If you sure. can you hang on for another minute or two? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So I would not expect a digital PM to have the the level of depth of knowledge that you have with Agile. I would never expect a digital PM to know who Troy was or right. I mean or to have Cohn's books or to have done story mapping. And it's nothing against them, it's just that's not part of that culture. Sure. So how did you evolve into this state and where do you draw like inspiration from? How do you find out more about this stuff with the background that you have and the work that you do? I'm, I was a programmer to start with. So I'm, okay. I'm a classic nerd from day one. Um, okay. And I came to Agile because I had found myself leading teams and didn't know how to do it. Okay. And so I've, I've been researching how to make processes better, like how to make processes better for a long time. And I learned about Agile from that and then Kanban and then, you know, all this other stuff along the way. So it, it comes naturally to me to just look for what's the next thing. Cause I'm yeah. in pain here. So maybe there's a better thing coming, you know? Um, but I, I also, I don't, I don't want to question the assumption entirely, but I think there's a lot of digital PMs that come from a lot of different backgrounds. Yeah different interests or have to wear a lot of different hats. And so a lot of us could be thinking about some of these things more than you might expect. Yeah. It could be that I'm old too. I... Well, I mean, <laughs> old is relative, right? But I, well, I, mean, I, I yeah, think there's room but... for someone to come from a design background and get into digital PM and be very business oriented, or maybe they switch horses and be like, yeah, I really want to do some beating counting and figure this thing out. Um, so I would want to spread the table and let people sample it. You know, I think there's yeah. room in digital PM for all of this stuff. Oh, I, I definitely think, I, I think it's awesome. And I just, I guess I wish that, um, I think if, if more digital PMs had the, whatever it is to go investigate some of this stuff and to find some of this stuff, yeah. a lot of the problems that they have, they would be able to move past a lot quicker. I mean, I find that it's been, I mean, I started doing that kind of work in 1995, so it's been a while. But I'm running across people that are still fighting the same struggles I was fighting back then. I'm like, how the hell have you not worked past this yet? Right. Like right. some of it just come on. Um, 
But yeah. you know, it's it's not it's easy for me to say that. It's not the same if you're just coming into it or you're working in a company that's run a certain way. I mean, everything's yeah, different. So that's exactly it. I mean, organizational dysfunction doesn't change a lot from decade yeah. to decade, but you get new bodies to, to abuse. Um, <laughs> Thank God. Right. And <laughs> there's there's another quote about uh, what is it? Oh, an expert is someone who's made all the mistakes you can make in the narrow field. Yep. So <laughs> definitely got that one down. That's that's what the summit <laughs> and, and other the local meetups and, and those kinds of things are for is to really kind of connect uh, people like you and me that have burnt our fingers enough times to, to yeah have something to say. You know, cool. So so yeah. So if people want to get in touch with you, like if they're going to be at the Adra conference and they want to talk to you, or yeah. um, just ha- what's the best way for them to reach you? Uh, so I'm at D says what on Twitter. Okay, and I am. True confessions. Not always totally focused on Twitter because there's a lot of noise out there, but um, I check it now and again. So yeah, you can find me there. I'm also at Darren, D-A-R-R-E-N dot Peterson, P-E-T-E-R-S-E-N at lullabot.com. All right. Cool. I'll make sure to include links to those in the show notes. Man, thank you very much for doing this. This was super inspiring to me and I really appreciate you taking the time. I'm so glad I could. Thanks, man.